Thresholds Radio with your host, John Stevenson. Recording a UFO activity. And there in the darkness, on the ground, knocking on the walls, something crawling. It's obvious that he had been stabbed. Why? Oh my god, are you seeing this? To a formation forming. You're listening to Thresholds Radio, the best of Michael Clean. All of Michael Clean's scariest and most interesting interviews, all in one show. We will start right away after this commercial break with Amelia Cotter and Michael Clean. We'll be right back. TheEdgeOnAir.com wants to invite you to be abducted. Tune in Friday night starting at 10 p.m. for Thresholds Radio. Host John Stevenson is your guide through the realm of the paranormal with an hour-long radio show sure to give you the heebie-jeebies. Check out UFO-Info.com to learn more. It's Thresholds Radio every Friday night at 10 p.m. on TheEdgeOnAir.com. All right, we're on the line with Michael Clean and Amelia Cotter. What's up, Amelia? Boy, is that a question. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, maybe we should introduce Amelia first for oh. people who aren't as familiar with her as we are. Oh, that's true. Yeah, we know her. We just assume everyone else does. <laughs> they should. No. Well, Amelia is an author and native Marylander who lives and writes in Chicago. She's got a couple of books out there, including This House, The True Story of a Girl and a Ghost, and the new one, Maryland Ghosts, Paranormal Encounters in the Free State. We'll be talking about that. And also this awesome little children's book called Breakfast with Bigfoot. We're going to have to talk about that as well. <laughs> uh, but, but she graduated from Hood College in Maryland, and she's the co-founder of Chicago Paranormal Seekers. So maybe we'll delve into that as well. Oh, welcome back. You've been on here. What have you been on here twice before? I don't remember how. Or we'll just, just once. I know we've had tried to have you on again, but we're you had a possessed phone for the longest time, and we could never <laughs> yeah, talk to you. <laughs> it was once, and then several unsuccessful attempts. Yeah, that was a special time. <laughs> it was the it's those uh, spirits that hang around you. They screw around with your cell phone. Well, even today, we're on oh, Skype yeah. now, but we tried to call you on the cell phone, and it it rang, but it never rang on your end. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, let's let's get into a little bit about you know your your past here for people who don't know what made you want to come to Chicago and tell us just very briefly about your first book this house uh, well I kind of moved to Chicago on a whim um, after college I was diagnosed with cancer and I ended up uh, being in treatment in chemotherapy for six months at home with my parents who now live in Pennsylvania and it gave me a lot of time to think and a lot of time to write. Um, and so I ended up writing uh, this house during that time, uh, the first draft of it. And then I was desperate to sort of get out of my home, get out of my hometown, the, you know, get out of Pennsylvania as well and sort of move on to, to a new place in Chicago. Um, I moved here with a friend and uh, it ended up, of course, being a absolutely fabulous opportunity for the publishing world and for the ghost hunting world so that that they came together for me really quickly um, this house of course was a childhood story uh, that I had reconnected with while I was sort of thinking back nostalgically on a lot of different aspects of my life and that 
experience that I had exploring this abandoned house when I was a kid really stuck out with me and the connection that I had had with the ghost and looking back for all of my paranormal exploration seeing that that was probably the one and only time uh, up to very recently that I had actually seen a ghost that I had made any kind of real connection with you know, the spirit world and so I thought that that would be the perfect thing to write a book about and I didn't know at the time that I would become like a paranormal author and that that would sort of be my thing. I just was interested in writing in general. So I, was, I thought I was going to write children's books, actually, just, you know, forever and ever. And uh, that obviously uh, didn't work out. <laughs> I was just about to ask, I mean, do you prefer writing for younger audiences? Well, I mean, I guess, you know, in a way, this house it can be a, it construed as a young adult book for sure. And I enjoy writing for children, but the things I've done so many things now in different play, in different aspects of publishing with children's publishing, uh, translation. Um, I do technical writing now as like a you know one of my actual uh, pay, well-paying jobs, and I, I enjoy all of it. So I um, I like to write about the paranormal the best, but I do like to write for a young adult audience as well. So whenever I have the opportunity to mix those, that's that's good with me so oh that's really cool so tell us about Maryland ghosts now it's it's kind of a collection it seems of different accounts from Maryland so it's in in my perspective I mean that's that's a very good uh, book of folklore that you've got here that researchers in the future will want to use this book you know perhaps to uh, to base their own writing off of Thank you. Um, yeah, Maryland Ghost is a collection of 35 stories. Uh, what I did was, and you don't have to be from Maryland to enjoy the book, because what I, what I decided to do is, you know, there's a lot of books everywhere from every state and region that do talk about the legends and the folklore, and that's really cool. And, of course, I, you know, I live and breathe on that stuff. But what I really love are ghost stories, people's actual experiences. So, you know, we all know about uh, Resurrection Mary, like we were talking about earlier, but I want to know who's actually seen her and what happened and how they felt. And so looking back in my home state of Maryland and how much I add, there's just an absolute, you know, it's a playground of, of folklore and history. And it's so amazing. I was like, you know, I've got to reach back. And all the stories I've been told by friends and relatives over the years, I thought I've got to collect these in one place. So it's sort of a mishmash of um, recounting history and folklore um, and then telling people's actual personal experiences and relating those in different ways. I did interviews. I did, you know, I did Facebook message interviews with people. I had people write me handwritten letters that I transcribed. It was a really cool process. And, um, you know, Ed Akonowitz is a big Maryland writer. He is to Maryland what, you know, Richard Crow or Slobielski is to, to Chicago and, um, he has collected a lot of the folklore and a lot of stories as well. And so I guess what I'm also doing is like building on his legacy and bringing a new perspective to it. So people's actual authentic personal experiences and not just uh, the, the legends and the folk tales told over and over again. So, Well, you have your own encounter in the book, don't you, at Hood College 
Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about that? I kind of, it's funny how I wanted to not focus on my own story since this house was about me, and then I ended up putting a couple of my own in the book anyway. Well, that's okay. Um, well, those are always the best ones, too, because I you figured, know people believe those because it's you telling your own story. Right, right. I figured, you know, why not? I've, I had the privilege of working and or living in a lot of these historic places, uh, especially when I went to college and I was out there in, you know, Civil War battlefield country near Antietam and near you know, um, South Mountain and all these places. And so the house that I lived in at, at Hood College was a residential house on the street, but it, it had been reverted into a dormitory. And uh, it was it was haunted as hell. And it's one of those things that, you know, even though I've always been into the paranormal, it wasn't until later that I really looked back and realized how haunted it was. It's sort of like when you live with it, you just sort of brush it under the carpet because I didn't want to deal with it. And of course, you know, it was college. So there was a lot of the fogginess that whole <laughs> life anyway but um but yeah i had some very interesting uh experiences there with um a couple of my roommates as well um seeing big like floating i don't want to call them orbs because they weren't they weren't light they were solid big solid like almost bowling balls that would hang in the air and sort of hover and vibrate and then shoot you know down the hallway oh, that's um, cool hearing giggling and footsteps and things like that and we had a roommate that lived upstairs in the attic and the attic spanned the the ceilings of all of our bedrooms and you would hear all sorts of noises you would hear people talking in different voices up there um you would hear something that sounded like a person rolling furniture across the floor um it would sound like somebody was bouncing a basketball but in like six places at once and it was like she either wasn't up there or she was up there by herself and just things like that and then um you know i had a, a night terror in which i had seen in which a lady uh came out of my closet and she hovered at the foot of my bed and it was you know, it was like a sleep paralysis episode and she was like growling at me and pointing her finger at me and it was absolutely the most vivid, terrifying thing Jeez. I can tell you I've ever seen. I found out uh, in 2009 actually, fast forwarding to a time when my friend Sarah came to visit me in Chicago. She had lived in the German house with me and uh, she lived in that same, she stayed in the room I stayed in a year after me. She had a dream, a night terror sleep paralysis where a woman came out of the closet and came and knelt by her bed and was screaming at her. She was dressed the same way. She had long hair. I mean, it was when when we conferred that that, that had happened to both of us, it uh, it made me glad I was 600 miles away from Maryland. That's kind of creepy. Have you, ever, have you ever tried going back there and to do some research to see if other people have experienced that? You know, without telling them what you're talking about, just to see if they've experienced things to kind of get that together? Well, my cousin lived there, too, because my cousin also studied German when she went to Hood, and she told me that nothing ever, ever happened in the house, and her roommates never reported anything, and I visited, um, and I actually can't tell you a lot about it, because there is research that was uncovered that was actually incredibly fascinating and uncanny, but it's actually going to be a part of a, um, a TV segment that I'm going to be doing uh, for the Sci-Fi Channel in the near future where that is going to be revealed, the research that we did and, you know, looking into the history of this house and finding out why I and a few of my roommates were haunted, but the people who came before me and or before us and the people who lived in the house after us have never reported any activity. Well, so you're soon to be a movie star. Good thing we got you now. 
Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> no autographs, please. <laughs> Hopefully you get a, a, a decent part in there. I have no, a few things I've done with Mike, too. You know, they talk to you for hours, and then it goes on air, and you're on there for, like, two minutes. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely, um, we have, Sarah and I are have a half of the show to ourselves, apparently, as far as we know. So it's going to be sort of a retelling of our experiences in the German house, as well as uh, the research and things that were uncovered. Um, but I, I can't talk about it now. But if you read, so in Maryland Ghosts, it sort of leaves it open-ended because obviously that research hadn't happened yet until more recently. Um, so it's just kind of the retelling of what happened to me, what happened to our roommate Kim, and what happened to Sarah, and uh, the different, just the different experiences we had on a day-to-day basis. And then years later when we compared notes, realizing just how bizarre uh some of the stuff was that happened there what show is this going to be on are you allowed to say i don't think i can say yet but it's a new show that's premiering very soon and then i will be on the next season oh that's cool what were you going to say mike i'm sorry i didn't mean to cut you off there oh that's okay i I was just going to try to ask about a different haunted place from the book i'll just change the subject when they're in the middle of talking i'll go ahead (laughs) Well, well I, I was kind of interested in this Dr. Samuel Mudd house in Waldorf. Can you tell us a little bit about that and this apparition photo that's in the book? Yeah, this apparition photo blew me away. Um, I'm sure you guys have experienced the same thing where somebody tells you they have a really cool ghost photo and they send it to you and it's an orb. And they're like, they give you some detailed description of who it is and what happened and, and it's an orb. <laughs> exactly. Some nebulous mist. Um, so these ladies um, told me, so Rhonda Dixon and Margaret Perry Ehrlich of um, Inspired Ghost Tracking, which is a major group in Maryland, they told me they had this awesome ghost photo from the Mud House, and they sent it to me, and it, I nearly jumped a mile high. So the Mud House is in Waldorf, and it is um, the restored home of Dr. Samuel Mudd. He was convicted in the conspiracy to assassinate Lincoln because he treated... Um, he he treated John Wilkes Booth early in the morning after Lincoln's assassination. Right, because I think didn't didn't Booth jump down from the ankle when he jumped, and he escaped, and he managed to make it to Doctor Mudd's house. Doctor Mudd was somebody who always opened his home. He did his he did a lot of his treatments out of his home, so uh, that was one of the first places that Booth went and he was treated early in the morning um, and then he left and one of the reasons why Dr. Mudd got in trouble, of course it's like a hugely complicated thing, but basically the main thing is that it took Dr. Mudd an awful long time to report to the police that John Wilkes Booth had been there. Um, So he he was um, convicted and actually later pardoned by, I want to say, Andrew Johnson? So he was later pardoned, but that was, you know, he actually, when he got out of jail, he moved back to his home and continued his practice um, to his death. So he, you know, so (laughs) I'm a real historian here. So um, he actually, you know, continued to practice in his home to his death. And then um, they, of course, I think, you know, regular folks lived in the house for a while until recently the um, Samuel Mudd society um actually put it you know put it back together as a place that the public is allowed to visit and allowed to explore and um as sort of a living history type place so 
this photo. So the story itself sort of resonates around these women exploring this with their ghost hunting group on a day when it was, you know, open, I think, for the public. Well, why, um, why were they there? I mean, what's the haunted story? What's the ghost well, story? You know, the ghost stories are sort of, from that place, it's known to be haunted, but not in any particularly like amazing way it's just you know it's basically so just the generic you know the generic cold spots things like that cold spots um apparition sightings um dr mudd's wife that sort of thing nothing like too um wild and crazy i would say as far as hauntings are concerned and the photo of this apparition so this so Rhonda, uh felt something behind her she turned around and she snapped a picture uh, into a mirror and there's another lady sort of with her there and uh, in the mirror you see a man standing on the stairs now he doesn't look like Dr. Mudd he doesn't look like he's even from that historical time period um, so it's kind of it's interesting but the photo is absolutely crisp and vivid and you only see you see right through him and you only see about half of his body but you can see the, the details of his, you know, he's wearing glasses. I mean, it's just, and there's like a reflection of his glasses from the flash. And it's absolutely chilling. Could you um, send me that photo by any chance? I could definitely send it to you. And for your reference, the, the flash is reflected on the jacket of the woman. It's not reflected on the mirror so that you don't see his bottom half because there's a flash on the mirror. There's mm -hmm. actually no flash on the mirror. So I'd be glad to send it to you. Yeah, I'd love to see that, actually. Best pictures I've ever seen. So. It's nice to see real ones instead of, you know, the normal one that's a little orb and it's great-great-grandma Jenny coming to visit you. I know. Well, some other people sent me some really kick-ass photos, too, of um, at the Jericho Covered Bridge, which is in Harford County. Um, and they, you know, there's legends of hanging figures and people having been lynched on the bridge uh, after the Civil War. And I got sent a picture of what looks like a, somebody um, hanging from the rafters of this covered bridge. And apparently one of the people in the in this team that sent it to me, which was, um, it's called Crip, they, um, one of them is an EMT, and he was saying, because the figure looks like a little curled up, and he was saying that would be characteristic of, like, rigor mortis, was that, you know, the legs would curl in a little bit and the body would be stiff. And so things like, those little extra details are sometimes really creepy to me and add that extra bit of uh i don't know special something to to these photos when i when i get them from people so just really cool stuff it is cool i love when people send photos sometimes they're really good a lot of times they're nothing unfortunately but sometimes you know you get some amazing photos i mean i never capture anything on film i take pictures everywhere i go and i've I, i've gotten like two good photos in my life that i can say contain you know a, a spirit and even then Sometimes I feel like, well, you know, it could be this, could be that. So when I see these photos, it, it amazes me. Yeah, I have pretty good luck. I've uh, Mike's seen a few of mine, too. I, I tend to, I'm, I'm real lucky when it comes to that. If that's what you want to call it, I go out and I always get stuff. Oh, yeah. I get a lot of EVPs and things like that, but, you know, nothing in the photo department ever. Just a lot of, you know, the backs of other investigators and boring stuff like that. <laughs> Well, what's your favorite story from the book? I have a couple of favorite stories. Um, the the cool thing about this book is that people, I invited people to send me more than just ghost stories. 
I was like, you know, a paranormal encounter can range from anything, like, you know, your, your inner intuition, uh, doppelgangers, um, UFOs, things like that. So I got um, a couple of UFO stories, and I even got a gnome story, which... Yeah, that is, that's one of my favorites, is the gnome story. Is it like that gnome, that, that video was going around for a while, and what was it, Mexico, where the gnome was walking sideways? A little crab walk. I remember that, that video had disturbed me a lot at the time, and when I got this... And, you know, the gnome from that video and the series of videos that came after it looked like your sort of traditional cartoonish, like, lawn gnome kind of little guy. Uh-huh. And the story that I got from my uncle, which was actually two separate gnome stories um, of encounters that he had, also these, these creatures were wearing these sort of, like, he described them as, like, little Peter Pan clothes. Like, they looked like traditional mythological gnomes from what we understand a gnome to be. Um, historically, gnomes were thought of in much different ways, sort of earth spirits, cave-dwelling type creatures that protect land and things like that. They weren't always, you know, it was sort of a, a the Germans began the tradition of the lawn gnome with the cone hat and, you know, all that cute, cutesy stuff. And uh, he ended up, he, he was hunting, actually, with, with a friend. And Were they gnome hunting? They were not gnome <laughs> but he, um, they, they were in a deer, they were in like a deer blind up in a tree. Okay. And uh, he saw the gnome through his scope. They heard a bunch of noise, and they thought a buck was going to walk into view. And they, he got the gnome on his scope. And he was looking at it, and apparently the gnome or whatever, this little creature, sensed that something was watching him. And it, he said it moved so fast that it became a blur, but that the leaves and things around it, you know, rustled up. And it ran down the trail, and then it disappeared. And he turned to his friend that was with him, and his friend was sort of pale. And he was like, what? what was that? What the heck was all that about? And he was like, you didn't see it? He was like, no, I didn't see anything. I only heard all this noise and saw all this commotion on the ground, but I didn't see anything. And then my uncle told him what he had seen. And, uh, you know, that was, I think that was the end of their hunting expedition. They were sufficiently creeped out. Um, and my uncle saw another one along the highway near Frederick, Maryland. Like he just, saw, you know, was driving along the highway and he stopped the car and uh, saw one like on an embankment near train tracks. And my uncle's someone who's had a lot of experiences since he was a kid. Uh, and I trust him, obviously, and everything. And uh, yeah, I, I like all your Uncle Bernie's stories from this. It, it reminds me of one of those old guys who would set out by the, uh, you know, by the old store and tell stories. <laughs> and tell stories. Every time I see him, he has a new story. He just goes places and things happen to him. And uh, he, you know, ever since he was a kid, he's had sort of like a gift. But then he, you know, he fought in Vietnam. He had high exposure to Agent Orange, and he became very ill in the late 80s from it. It took that long for him to sort of have a physical breakdown. And... Uh, that's when things really kicked, you know, kicked into gear, I guess you could say. Ever since then, he's been having really strong experiences and uh, just very interesting. He's a very interesting guy to talk to. He'll talk to you all day long. <laughs> He'll take that story and make it, you know, three a three-hour saga. So That's Uncle Bernie's? What his name yep. was? Uncle Bernie, yep. Did you, ever, did you ever spend a weekend at Bernie's? <laughs> I never did. <laughs> just checking. I never did. 
for the record. <laughs> well, okay. we, we have to talk about Breakfast with Bigfoot. How in the world did you come up with this idea? Oh, gosh. I, um, well, when I was living in Germany, uh, I originally had the thought, you know, I, 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 I've always wanted to be an author, et cetera, et cetera. And when I lived in Germany, I really was inspired to kind of start writing. And so I wrote it almost as a parody um, just between me and my friend Gretchen. Uh, we had a little Bigfoot, you know, a little Bigfoot obsession going on, and we were looking up all the stuff on, like, the Bifro website and reading Bigfoot stories. And I had read a story about a guy who was abducted uh, by a Bigfoot, and carried he was carried through the woods by his backpack. Apparently he had, like, fallen asleep and it got dark or something, and this, bat, this Bigfoot rescued him and uh, took him to his nest, and he spent the night with this Bigfoot, and in the morning, the Bigfoot let him go. And <laughs> I thought it was the most hysterical thing. Um, now, did, did he spend the night with Bigfoot or spend the night with Bigfoot? <laughs> we may never know what really happened that night. But, uh, <laughs> okay, uh, okay but Mike, that was more than we needed. <laughs> <laughs> what happens in Bigfoot's nest stays in Bigfoot's nest. Oh. That's right. <laughs> but... So I decided to write a children's, like a, a story about it. At the time, it wasn't like a children's children's story aimed at, you know, three to six-year-olds the way it is now. It was just a goofy story about a character named Gretchen who, you know, she gets lost in the woods. And I'm a big, I'm a big outdoors woman. I like to go hiking and camping and stuff. So I turned it into sort of a, a nature story about survival if you get lost and you can't find your mom and dad. And she ends up... Uh, you know, Bigfoot rescues her, and so the next morning they want to have uh, breakfast together, and he eats all of his Bigfoot food out in the woods, like what <laughs> animals would his eat. Bigfoot his Bigfoot food. <laughs> his Bigfoot food, you know, fish and berries and nuts and whatnot, and she has her people food in her backpack, like a peanut butter sandwich and goldfish crackers and, uh, you know, grapes. And so it's sort of like a very, uh, you know, watered-down comparison of what people eat versus what you eat in nature and sort of the idea of processed foods and stuff like that. And uh, the illustrator, the original illustrator was a, was a disaster. Um, the, it, Mike has seen a few of the illustrations. It was photo collage originally, and the, the, the photo collages were absolutely terrifying. It was like the stuff of nightmares. Like this was not a cute. Oh, uh, good for a children's it was, book. It was, children. <laughs> it was, it was not. It looked, it, it looked it was like the kind of thing that made you jump when you opened the file, like, oh, okay, my Bigfoot illustration is here. Oh, God. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so we got Charles Swinford on board then to, to do the really, really adorable illustrations of Bigfoot. So he's not very ape-like. He's more like a big, like a big furball kind of fur puff of, of love and stuff like that, which I think is more... Something like you would see on Sesame Street, like Mr. Snuffleupagus or something? Yeah, something <laughs> like that, and not so much. Like, he actually looks a little bit like that cartoon character. He used to be um, on the Marvin the Martian cartoons, and he was wearing... Oh, yeah, movie. yeah, I know exactly who you mean. <laughs> he looks a little bit like that, and which is, you know, a lot less like the big, the pedophile Bigfoot that was in the last, the last set of illustrations. <laughs> So, but it hasn't come out yet, so I'm still waiting on news, and I actually am expecting news any day. It was supposed to come out in December, but, you know, the nature of small publishers and publishing in general is that one thing, one disaster can happen one day with a wholesale order or something like that, and then next thing you know, you've set back your schedule for, for six months, so. Yeah, I know, I know that all too well. Yeah, so I, um, I advertised for it prematurely, but then 
Now it should be coming out soon from Barclay Bryan Press, and uh, if nothing else, we'll get it out on Kindle edition or something like that so people can get their hands on it. So it's um, much highly anticipated, but not not here quite yet, but it's going to be good when it is. Soon, it, so. it sounds good. You know, speaking, you said you were in Germany. How long were you living in Germany? I lived in Germany for a year. So I studied there uh, my, my junior year of college. The folklore in Germany is amazing. I mean, have you got any stories from there? Or did, were you involved in that? Because the history and folklore in Germany is just absolutely amazing. I really, you know, it was interesting because I took a, a ghost, like a supernatural tour in Heidelberg where I lived. A lot of students study in Heidelberg. It's a great university. And uh, I expected a lot more ghost stories, but it's interesting the way... Um, there's a lot of excellent German folklore, but Germans aren't as much into the ghosts and paranormal side of things as, as we are. So when I went on the tour, it was a lot of legends. It was a lot of things about like werewolves and the, the sighting of the devil in, in uh, Heidelberg and witches, the witches mountain and things like that. And so it was really cool, but it was obviously based upon different legends and beliefs that people genuinely had, um, you know, seven, eight hundred years ago and things like that. But there were two major, major sites in Heidelberg that were allegedly haunted. One was a Nazi amphitheater on the top of a hill called Philosophenweg. You would walk up uh, or drive up this really big hill. And Heidelberg was always a liberal city. And so they never wanted to have anything to do with, with Hitler and World War II and all that. And so uh, the Nazis decided they were going to build a special theater there to try to convince the people that they should, you know, join them and, and cooperate with their regime and, and the Heidelbergans and stuff. They, were, they never wanted to have any part of it. They were liberal. They were international. They, they hated the Nazis. So it fell through. But you have this huge Nazi amphitheater that's built on the top of this hill and the sort of architecture that they would use to be, you know, to be imposing um, was horrifying. And it, it's, it, you know, it, and it's creepy now. It's all overgrown. The steps and the seats that people would sit on are all covered in grass now. And it's supposed to be haunted. Um, right behind that, literally, you walk again through a little patch of woods. There's an old um, cathedral and a Celtic. It was originally like a Celtic church area way back in the day, like 1,500 years ago. And then they built... Um, like a cathedral or a monastery over that, which is now also ruins. And so there were all these ruins back there as well. And the whole area is just supposed to be this spiritual place. And I went up there once uh, with a couple friends and it was actually, there were some people up there, you know, with candles and talking and, and drinking and stuff, but it was pretty darn creepy. Um, you could feel in the air. And again, like you know, Germany is a very modern place. It's a very friendly place. And this was one of those places where you could feel um, that there was something there. So I didn't have any experiences, but it was, it was, an, it was amazing uh, to see that. And it was, a, it was a weird place. Wasn't the folklore out there, isn't there like uh, fairies and trolls and that kind of stuff? Isn't that big in that part of the it's world? Fairies, trolls, um, werewolves. Even there's a lot of Bigfoot legends and stuff um, that originate in Germany. Um, a lot of, you know, what we, where we get our modern ideas of elves and things like that, that comes from that area. A lot more so in, in Northern Europe, well, further north, um, Scandinavia and Iceland and places like that. But, um, but they do have, you know, the neatest folklore and historical outlook there with, looking back on, on where they've come from with these sorts of 
legends and mentalities that people had back in the day. I've always wanted to go out there myself. I thought it'd be amazing. I mean, in America, we got cool stuff, but you go to Europe and places there, their history is, you know, way, way longer than America yeah, ever is. Yeah, their buildings go back thousands of years. I mean, we, we don't have anything in Illinois that's 200 years, you know, over 200 years, unless you're talking about the Cahokia Mounds. Right, right. I mean, there's even, there's talking, you know, because cities that are built on top of cities and things like that, um, in Europe, you hear stories about people seeing the ghosts of other, of, you know, just the head and shoulders of someone because they're actually walking on the, the street level as it used to be however many hundreds of years ago when they lived. Oh, that's cool. Um, so I never actually I've heard, heard that. That's, that's actually heard, pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I've heard stories about that. I've heard stories of people having their uh, basements haunted by people um, because, again, the street level, the ground level was so much lower um, hundreds and hundreds of years ago because you have all these layers of course of you know building on top of building so there there's a lot of cool stuff to be seen there so what are your plans now are you working with some paranormal groups in chicago yep um my group is the chicago paranormal seekers uh we don't take ourselves too seriously we do open ourselves up to home and business investigations but we do a lot of exploration and at places that are already known to be haunted um you know a lot of things that we do for our personal um satisfaction and, and knowledge and things like that so we have a lot of fun and you know i work around with different groups we have there's a big network in chicago so everyone is friends with everyone um as long just, as they have matching hats and t-shirts they're legitimate then <laughs> we and we don't we we got ourselves our hiking boots um is that the first thing when someone calls you for something they say their home is haunted and the first question is do you have matching hats and t-shirts right right now what what uh what shade of black will you be wearing to my house because i want to know if it's you know, i'm guilty of that i actually i'm i'm terrible <laughs> I, I wear black and everything i go to i just always done that even before i was doing this i just i don't know i'm i like black <laughs> Yeah, it, most of my, you know, my clothes are, are dark. Well, the so. picture I'm looking at you right now on uh, Skype, very, very black. <laughs> oh, yeah, very goth. Um, yeah, no, I, I try to go for the, the city girl sophisticated angle so that people know that I'm, I'm legit and not just another face in the crowd, I guess. It pays to be pretty when you do this kind of stuff, too. So. <laughs> yeah, especially in a, a field that seems to be dominated by men. Right, right. It can it can suck sometimes, and it can also work in my favor. Uh, so you know, there's that. But but yeah. So I work with this group, and we're we're all you know we're all working professionals. So we also do this on our own time, kind of. And um, we we went to Villisca this year already. The Villisca Axe Murder House. That place is great. I went there too. Yeah. That's some place I've always wanted to go. It was a very sad, disturbing experience. I had I had had ethical reservations about going there uh, last year. I wasn't sure if that was something I wanted to do. Um, it seemed too close to home for me to go spend the night in the house where an entire family and children had been murdered uh, for my entertainment. It's a very but sad place. Yeah, I, I did end up going. There, it was, you know, again, you're sort of desensitized in the moment because you're there and you're all hyped up and excited and things are, things are happening. So when I left, I sort of took a, a feeling with me for a while of, uh, you know, just a, a very, a very strange feeling, but it was cool. We didn't have too much activity. We had some stuff early on in the evening. And then after that, 
it kind of quieted down. Yeah, we had the opposite, actually. It was pretty yeah, quiet. And, and late evening is when we started getting quite a bit of things going on. What happened was one of the people in our group became violently ill. So we started early in the night, and around 10, 1030, the guys, the girls, we were out in the barn taking a break, and the guys were upstairs in the children's bedroom um, doing some provoking, and a guy got started to feel really sick. His head started to hurt, and he came out on the front lawn, and he puked everywhere. This guy isn't on our team. He was a guest, really nice guy. He was really shaken up by the whole thing, and I think what it did was instead of, I mean, it in some ways, for me, it amped me up to go back in there and be like, all right, now, now things are real. Let's do this. And I think it shocked a couple of the other people in the group, and then we sort of quieted down after that. Like, it was almost like we were told, you know, like we were... The, the house was like, okay, you think you can come in and, and just act however you want to act? Well, guess what? We're not, we're not joking around here. So I think it sort of like shook, shook us up a little bit, and we were not, we didn't go for it then as much. You know, as we one thing about that house, you were there, so you know what I'm talking about too. Can you imagine how somebody carried out those murders in that tiny, tiny house where anything, everybody would have heard everything? I, I just can't I, comprehend okay. it. I, we had a seven-hour drive back to Chicago. I drove with, with Christina, and that's all we talked about. We sat there, and we, we were reading some stuff on her iPhone about, like, you know, accounts of the house and the murders and actual studies that have been done. And we were like, how did this happen? It's bizarre. It's absolutely bizarre. And every suspect in the case seems like a viable suspect. And it's just, you just, every, it's just so strange. It's one of the strangest things. It left me with such a weird feeling. Uh, especially that little closet where they say he hid in upstairs, they think. That the tiny, tiny little closet, as soon as you walk out of there, you look to the left and the parents' beds are like three foot away. And then you go to the right and the kids are there. And that stairway is tiny and loud. You can't breathe without everybody hearing what's going on. So it's, I mean, I know that they surmise that one of the children was awake, but that was the girl who was downstairs. She had like defensive wounds. But yeah, I, it's just so, so bizarre. It makes me sick thinking about it. And uh, and the fact that there's still axe marks in the wall, too. I mean, people lived in this house for like 60 years after this happened, or more, and they covered up some of the axe marks, but then they didn't cover up one or two. I mean, how could you look at that every day? Well, I know after Darwin bought it, he actually put it back how it used to look, because somebody had bought it and modernized it more, and Darwin changed it back to how it used to look back then, so it was authentic. Yeah, right. I, I heard, and I I think this was in a documentary that was made about it, but somebody was interviewed for the documentary who had lived there as a young girl. Her parents rented the house or something, and she said there were still blood stains on the wall. Oh, and they oh, just nice. never. I mean, but that's something that you can't really get get rid of you know i mean unless they just wallpapered over it right there's a deep deep axe mark in the parents bedroom that i guess even if you like i don't know spackled over it or whatever you could uncover it again or or because uh, some of the axe marks were successfully painted over but then this one was so deep i guess when darwin bought it he was able to uncover it again but yeah the blood stains everything i mean the house is just it's not right in there <laughs> well i i can't even imagine i I went uh, on an investigation once at a house where a girl had shot herself in the head with a shotgun. That's never and, nice. Well, they, you know, I mean, the room was fine. They had su sufficiently re-wallpapered and everything. You couldn't tell anything happened in there. But just knowing that it did happen was really, it, it made the hairs stand up, you know, just to know that 
that that occurred in that room at some point. Yeah, it's almost like you can still feel the the shot ringing out. You know, like it's that residue that stays back, and so you could feel the almost. I don't know. In some ways, you walk into the the Velisca house, and it's almost like the murders just happened. You can still feel the tension in the air. That place is so. I know. I went in there. I was in there myself a few times. Just and you can just feel something. It's. I mean, it, it's just terrible what happened. I was talking to Darwin's wife about that. I'm like, I don't understand why the children's spirits are still here. And uh, she kind of got tears in her eyes and choked up and couldn't answer. Because that that bothers me. I'm like, why in heaven's name are the children's spirits still there? Right. If they're there because they have each other or they don't know where like their mom and dad are like I thought about that too I was like you know what what's going on I just you know I hope if they're all there that they're all together you know but that's a creepy place out of all the places I've been to that one I actually opened the door walked in myself and just got a feeling that I don't know how to describe it just it was just the creepiest weirdest strange feeling I ever felt yeah it's it gets you it that place well let's Take it somewhere a little bit more positive. No. Well, that, the show's about this kind of stuff, though. We're finally yeah. hitting on the stuff the listeners love. <laughs> well, do you have any plans for the future? Do you have any events coming up or anything? Yes. Um, I have. Uh, well, I also have an interview on Monday night uh, for The Chosen Radio. And in August, I'll be at the Phantom Fest in Danville, Illinois. In yes, I'll, I'll also be there. Yay! Well, and we'll also be together for the Paranormal Kicks Cancer event on September 15th, but the location is still to be determined in Illinois. Um, they still don't have the location on that yet, huh? It's funny that. how Amelia knows more about the events I'm going to than I am. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I... I uh, I'm an obsessive list maker and calendar planner type person, so I have all my plans already. I already know what I'm going to wear. Um, and then <laughs> You already know what you're going to wear? Is that what you just said? I think about that sometimes, yes. <laughs> I know what I'm going to wear That's because a... I always wear the same thing. Okay, right. <laughs> okay Mike. <laughs> we'll, be at, uh, we'll be at Afterlife Paranormal Conference together at the Portage Theater also. That's October 5th and 6th. And I'm also planning to do a book tour in Maryland at the beginning of September. I don't have details about that yet, but it's going to be a mini book tour. I have some things already uh, tentatively booked, so that's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, so this, yeah, this is going to be a, a busy, busy upcoming uh, ghost season for me. So that sounds really awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, I'd actually say we've tried a few times to get you on here, but I know uh, <laughs> success. The the radio spirits just won't allow you to be on. Right. We, <laughs> Well, this time it's it's worked out, so I'm very grateful for that, and, and thank you very much for being on. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. No problem, and then we'll have you again, if if you're allowed to. If the radio spirits will allow it, we'll have you on again. Cosmic forces, definitely. Okay, take care now. Okay, you too. TheEdgeOnAir.com wants to invite you to be abducted. Tune in Friday night starting at 10 p.m. for Thresholds Radio. Host John Stevenson is your guide through the realm of the paranormal with an hour-long radio show sure to give you the heebie-jeebies. Check out UFO-Info.com to learn more. It's Thresholds Radio every Friday night at 10 p.m. on TheEdgeOnAir.com. Welcome back. So I hear you have another top ten list for us today, Mike. The what? The most haunted churches? Is that what it was? That's right, John. And this this one has been phenomenally popular. Usually, people love my top ten list, but this one actually was posted on the front page of FARC.com. Some of your 
listeners might be aware of that website. Well, it's Kinda, a good idea, actually. I was telling you that off air. I go, I'm amazed you never thought of this one before. Well, the the thing is that uh, that yeah, I mean, it it takes a lot of research and writing each one of these lists. So it took me a while. I I just kind of wrote down about two dozen new ideas for top ten lists. I am kind of running out of original ideas, but. You know, hopefully they'll get more creative as I go down the list. You can maybe start doing the lower 20 list or something. Yeah, no, what I'm going to end up doing is like the top 10 most underappreciated ghosts in Illinois, you know, stuff like that. (laughs) There you go. But this is one of the good ones. And as a focus of such devotion and reverence, now I found that churches are some of the most haunted places in Illinois. And Pretty much every building you could think of, every type of building has been haunted. But churches get a lot of energy concentrated into them. And whether it's a devoted pastor who refuses to leave his flock, a religiously inspired vision, or spirits of the departed that are just drawn to the energy of an active congregation, it's rare to find a church that is devoid of at least one ghostly tale. So these are the top 10 that are most well-known in Illinois. At number 10, we have kind of an obscure one. This is Mount Pleasant Church in Claremont, Illinois. That's over by Olney, if anybody knows where that is. This is a relatively new addition to local lore. It's developed its legends within the past few decades. The church closed in 1990, and it's said to be home to a variety of phenomenon. Visitors have reported hearing choirs and footsteps, have witnessed lights emanating from cracks in the door, And there's even rumors of phantom funerals that have taken place at the nearby cemetery. So as of yet, there's very little information that's been confirmed about this location. So it's mostly just kind of rumors. Number nine, we have St. Rita's Church. This is in Chicago, Illinois. A lot of these churches are in Chicago. Now, this particular church is known for one hair-raising event on All Souls Day in the early 1960s. This was witnessed by dozens of parishioners who gathered there to pray, and they saw something in the early evening. This was announced by the organ. The organ began to play by itself. Then suddenly they claimed that six robed monks appeared, three wearing black and three wearing white. The parishioners attempted to flee, but they found the doors of the church were locked. The phantom monks advanced and the organ wailed. Finally, the vision faded as disembodied voices whispered, pray for us. Eyewitnesses estimated that this whole incident lasted about two minutes. Wow, that's actually pretty cool. And a bunch of people saw that then. Yeah, and it was it was very intense. And if you read books about Chicago ghost lore, that is an incident that's written about quite frequently. Well, I can imagine that would be pretty freaky. So at number eight on the list is St. John's Methodist Church. This is in Oak Park, Illinois. Now, this church has a diverse congregation that's heavily oriented towards missionary work, and they believe that all are welcome to come and share in the service. But beneath this outwardly quaint appearance lurk some unusual tales. The basement of the church is said to be particularly active. It is home to the ghost of an old lady and one mischievous phantom who likes to play pranks on visitors. On at least one occasion, several churchgoers were playing pool in the basement when one of the balls disappeared. After looking at all the pockets and on the floor, the ball dropped from the ceiling with a thud. 
According to the Shadowlands Index of Haunted Places for Illinois, there is a winding set of stairs that leads to a labyrinth-like attic. Many of the rooms are used for storage, but one in particular contains a cryptic message written on the wall in red crayon, which says, Be kind in God's house. So a lot of kind of stories hidden in the nooks and crannies of that church. Uh, number seven on the list is St. Benedict Church in Chicago, Illinois. This is one that Ursula Bielski wrote about in her most recent book. St. Benedict Church was built in 1918 to serve the area's German-American residents, and stained glass windows and ornate stations of the cross were even imported from Germany. Now, according to Ursula, the church's haunted history can be traced back to its construction when a worker fell from the scaffolding to his death near the altar. Since that time, an apparition of the worker has been seen sitting in the front pews or standing behind the columns in the back of the altar. A janitor has also heard the sound of a kneeler rising and falling as he unlocked the church for early morning mass. Hmm. That'd be cool if the ghost, they actually would see him up like working in the rafters or something. That would actually be pretty cool, recreating what he used to do. Yeah, well, and St. Benedict Church is really a beautiful church. It has a red brick facade, so it's, it's very nice looking. Now, number six is St. Terribius Church. I'm not sure exactly how you pronounce that, but this is another one from Chicago. And it's an old Roman Catholic church on Chicago's southwest side. And according to Richard Crow, our favorite and belated uh, ghost expert, Mm -hmm. there was a priest named Father Joe Fleckert that led St. Terribius during the 1950s and 60s. When he was replaced due to a reorganization of the local Catholic hierarchy, He was said to have died of a broken heart. It wasn't long before parishioners whispered that his ghost still lingered. There were whiffs of cigarette smoke, and altar boys had seen the figure of a man wearing a beretta, just like Father Lecker once wore. His ghost has also been seen walking around the other parish buildings in the area. Now, number five is the First Methodist Church in Evanston, Illinois. The First Methodist Church was founded in July of 1854, And in its early history, it provided leadership for the anti-slavery, temperance, peace, and educational movements. The current building opened in 1911. In 1954, it hosted the Assembly of the World Council of Churches, an organization that works to unify Protestant denominations. The First Methodist Church Sanctuary, completed in 1930, is reportedly haunted by the ghost of an anonymous man dressed in a black business suit. According to the Shadowland Index again, he walks down the side aisle in the sanctuary, coming out from behind one pillar and walking behind the next. But if you look behind the pillar, no one will be there. And no one really knows who this man was or why he might be haunting the church. Now, number four is Holy Family Church in Chicago, Illinois. This is has kind of an interesting history, too. It was built in the 1850s, and it was one of the only buildings of its kind to survive the Chicago fire. And its very origins were connected to the spiritual. According to Father McCarthy, the church's pastor in 1973, its altar was positioned above a stream that ran under the church, which itself was considered sacred ground by American Indians because of a battle that took place there. Traditionally, divine intervention is credited for preventing the church from being consumed in the Chicago fire, since Holy Family is located only a few blocks 
from where popular belief asserts the fire started. Additionally, statues of two boys holding candles hang high above the altar. These are thought to be representations of the spirits of two altar boys that led a priest to a dying woman in need of receiving last rites. Once, Father McCarthy also witnessed a figure standing in the choir loft, although it had been closed to the public for years. Now, this next one is a very fiery tale. This is number three on our list. It's the Old First Baptist Church near Collinsville, Illinois. Now, this former Baptist church has a long and tragic history. It survived only one fire to perish in a second. According to legend, locals caught in a furor of anti-German sentiment during World War I attacked and seized a German janitor who had been working at the church and locked him in the basement. Fearful that he might turn them into the sheriff, the mob burnt the church to the ground and blamed the fire on an accident. A new church was built over the old basement. And since that time, visitors have reported seeing shadowy figures, experiencing cold spots and uneasiness, and hearing disembodied footsteps. Additionally, items have gone missing and unseen hands have left bruises on members of the congregation. Now, this church held an annual haunted house, but it burned down under mysterious circumstances in October of 2003. So, quite a very haunted place. That's an interesting one, yeah. Now, the number two church on our list is one that some of you probably have been waiting to hear. This was the Beverly Unitarian Church in Beverly, Illinois. This is also known as the Irish Castle. You might be familiar with that. It's one of the most haunted places in Chicago, and it's host to a bunch of different phenomenon that usually manifests in the wintertime. Built in 1886, the Irish Castle changed hands several times until finally becoming a church in 1959. It was then that the ghost stories began to be told. Parishioners describe encounters with the ghost of a young girl who is believed to have died in the 1890s during an influenza outbreak while the building was used as a school for girls. An older woman wearing a red outfit has been seen at weddings and other church receptions and events. Muffled conversation, laughter, and the clatter of glasses and tableware is also occasionally heard. Additionally, the ghost of a lady has been seen tending the garden behind the church. So let's go through 10 through 9 real briefly, and then we'll see the top haunted uh, church in Illinois. Number 10 was Mount Pleasant Church in Claremont. Number 9 was St. Rita's Church in Chicago. Number 8 was St. John's Methodist Church in Oak Park. Number 7 was St. Benedict Church in Chicago. Number six was St. Terabius Church in Chicago. Number five was the First Methodist Church in Evanston. Number four was Holy Family Church in Chicago, Illinois. Number three was the Old First Baptist Church. That's the one that burnt to the ground. Number two was the Old Irish Castle, the Beverly Unitarian Church. And the number one most haunted church in Illinois. Can you guess it? <laughs> no. Well, the number one is St. James Sag Church oh, in okay. Vermont, Illinois. I've been there a couple times, but I've never been able to get in. Oh, yeah. Well, they're very protective of it because it's been vandalized many times. But there's so many different legends surrounding this place. It sits on a bluff overlooking the juncture of the Chicago Sanitarian Ship Canal and the Calumet Sag Channel, the church and cemetery of distant origins. One burial can be traced to 1818, that's the year that Illinois became a state. 
but the graveyard began to be heavily used in the 1830s when Father St. Sire built a log chapel to accommodate the spiritual needs of the Irish canal workers. The limestone building that exists today was built in 1850, and in the past few decades, phantom monks have made appearances here. According to Richard Crow, a police officer by the name of Herb Roberts encountered nine of these monks in the early morning hours the day after Thanksgiving in November 1977. The officer reported that the robed figures ignored him when he ordered them to stop, <laughs> and they seemed to disappear as he pursued them beyond the gates of the cemetery. No monks have ever been stationed at the parish, but these sightings have led the church to be popularly known as Monk's Castle. Mm -hmm. One of Chicago's oldest ghost stories, that of a young bride in a phantom carriage, also originated here, and a former priest claimed the hillside would move on its own as if it were breathing. So quite a lot going on there. I've never been able to get into there. I've gone there numerous times, and those huge gates are always closed and locked. Yeah, I've, I've been in the cemetery several times. Well, that's what I, I mean, think... trying to get in the cemetery. That, that, that whole entrance area is locked every time I go there. Oh, yeah, and they've been doing that more often lately because, unfortunately, there has been a lot of vandalism, and the church actually was robbed, I think, on a couple of occasions. That's sad. What kind of person would rob a church, my God? Yeah, I, I don't know, but some people don't have limits. I heard they had monk security guards, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the old legends I actually heard about the place, but I didn't include in this little blurb, was that if the monks caught you uh, trespassing, they would make you kneel on ball bearings. Oh, really? Are these the, these the ghost monks, you mean, or the real monks? Yeah, the, the ghost monks. <laughs> I don't know. That's one of the places that I've wanted to go to. I've been, I think probably three or four times, different occasions, and every single time the gates are locked. Well, uh, the first time I went there, I actually didn't know it was supposed to be haunted. We drove by. We were going around Archer Avenue just to see, you know, Resurrection Cemetery, and we drove by this church, and I thought, wow, you know, this is really cool because it's up on that hill. And when you kind of come around the street, you see it looming out of the woods. And, you know, it, it just looks like a place where a ghost story would be. Mm -hmm. That's actually all it takes, too, if it has the look. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes. So that's all you got for us this week, then. You don't have any paranormal news this week, you were telling me off air, right? All our listeners are going to be very upset with you. <laughs> <laughs> well... Hopefully they'll forgive me, but the big news item we already talked about, which was the death of Richard Crow. That's sad, too. I mean, my gosh, you know, when you think of ghost stories, you think of paranormal, anything with Chicago, Richard. Yeah. I mean, you quoted Richard, what, two or three times just in this one little thing here. Oh, yeah. Uh, his his research has really been invaluable. It's, and like I said earlier, I mean, he he was there when a lot of these stories got started. I mean, he was the original guy who put the information out there you know what i can foresee in uh, you know another five ten twenty years or something the richard crow story ghosts were you know if, down the line people are going to be like on resurrection cemetery you know we saw the outline of this man thought to be richard <laughs> crow think about it because that's how legends start yeah i bet you know down the line people are going to be talking about that well if anything i i can imagine at chet's melody lounge they're going to be saying people see him coming into the bar. Mm -hmm. Isn't that, is, is that the place where Resurrection Mary's supposed to go to? Is that that place? Yeah, and I've been told that the place is haunted in its own right, that there might be other ghosts in there, but it's right across the street from Resurrection Cemetery. So Resurrection Mary was supposed to have 
been there a couple of times. And she goes and gets a bite to eat, has a drink. <laughs> yeah. Well, the sign out front, it says, uh, eat, drink, and see Mary. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> yeah. I okay. Well, and I guess that's it for this week then. And like I said, our poor fans aren't going to get the news. They're going to be very disappointed now. Well, next week, hopefully, we'll have something really good. Well, not hopefully. Next week, we will have something really good is what you meant to say. Yes, of course. <laughs> okay. Talk to you okay. Talk to you later, Mike. TheEdgeOnAir.com wants to invite you to be abducted. Tune in Friday night starting at 10 p.m. for Thresholds Radio. Host John Stevenson is your guide through the realm of the paranormal with an hour-long radio show sure to give you the heebie-jeebies. Check out UFO-Info.com to learn more. It's Thresholds Radio every Friday night at 10 p.m. on TheEdgeOnAir.com. Welcome back to Thresholds into Other Realms. With us right now, we have Michael Clean, and today Michael has another special guest with him. How are you doing today, Mike? Hey, John. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on once again. Yes, uh, today we have joining with us Scott Kelly, who is the owner of Ashmore Estates in outside of a little town called Ashmore in uh, East Central Illinois. And for those of you who don't know, a lot of you probably saw the Ghost Adventures episode but if you didn't, Ashmore Estates was actually featured on the uh, season premiere of Ghost Adventures this year. So very exciting. It's also going to be featured in a Booth Brothers production, Children of the Grave 2, uh, after many years of production. And that should be out hopefully very soon. Uh, so we're very glad that Scott could join us. And he's going to tell us a little bit about Ashmore Estates and some of the, the strange things that have gone on there over the years. Uh, Scott, uh, how, how have you been lately? I'm doing great, Mike. Good to, good to talk to you again. Great. Uh, for our listeners now, a lot of them may have heard of Ashmore Estates, but they don't know very much about yourself. Uh, can you tell us sort of a little bit about your background, how you got into uh, haunted attractions and what attracted you to the building originally? Well, I've, uh, I've been doing haunted attractions uh, most of my life, and we had done a, a haunted attraction at a, an Amish park around here and had about 100 actors at it, and the people said that they didn't need our help anymore, so uh, I was looking for another place to hold a haunted attraction. I checked a bunch of different places around this area it just just to make sure that everybody knows haunted attraction is like the Halloween haunted house you go to um, right and and corn mazes and things of that nature uh, but I was looking for a place to hold our haunted attraction and I tried a bunch of different places and I wasn't being real successful at finding a place and I knew about Ashmore Estates and the thought had crossed my mind years before that 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 would make an awesome haunted house because the place is already really creepy looking and uh, it just has an air about it that that everybody everybody already thought that the place was haunted and and scary so we're better to make a haunted attraction and I was able to purchase it from the person who was owning it. Oh, great! And can you give us a little bit of a history of the the building itself? Uh, the building was built in 1960 as the Coles County Poor Farm Almshouse. Mm -hmm. And uh, an almshouse is a place where the county was able to do their alms for the poor. So uh, it was welfare before there was welfare. And it, it housed, oh, I think we've, in discussing it, I think we've found that it's housed as many as, uh, the buildings on the property have housed as many as like 53 people. But this one, I've heard that it's housed as many as about 40 
and that was that was the intent of this building was it was built to be a place that people could live at uh, who didn't have a way of making a living or people who had mental conditions and didn't have anybody to care for them or they were already not in a in a hospital or something like that uh, and uh, after the the poor farm closed. It was a, a facility for people, I, I would say, for developmental disabilities. Would you think that's an accurate description? Yeah, the, the building was uh, what would have been at the time considered a mental institution and a psychiatric ward or hospital on a small scale, as, as I just found out recently that, that it actually had, a, had been a psychiatric hospital for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's basically, um, in the, in the last part of its life, which was as, as a mental institution, it was a intermediate care facility for the developmentally disabled or an ICFDD. And those still exist today. They're just a lot smaller than this. This, this building was, uh, meant to house about 47 people as an ICFDD. They had added on to the, the original building to put in a, uh, an elevator and uh, to expand and, and make more rooms. Mm-hmm. So you initially bought this just for a, a Halloween attraction kind of thing, like the funhouse kind of thing, right? That's that's what I do, is I do um, Halloween haunted attractions, and that was the purpose I bought it. I, and when I bought it, I didn't really know that there was a... I really didn't follow the paranormal industry at all. Right. I <laughs> uh, didn't know anything about it, and as soon as I had bought it, I had all these people coming and asking me if they could investigate the place. And I, my spiritual belief doesn't have me believing that the place would be haunted. And I kind of was of the impression that I wasn't going to allow people to do that. But after some soul searching, I figured out that the people who are doing this are just trying to find out what's going on. So mm-hmm. I changed my mind and let, let people come out to do, do uh, paranormal investigations. The place is pretty well known for that. You had no idea when you were buying it that you didn't have to make it haunted. It already was. <laughs> well, it's it uh, it definitely had a had a long term of people believing that the place was haunted, and uh, the people were here every night. Boys would bring their girlfriends out just to scare them or whatever, and and there was just people here all the time. Oh yeah. Well, when I was at uh, Eastern Illinois University in Charleston, this was before you purchased the building. And I had just heard it was this abandoned insane asylum out in the in the middle of nowhere. That's what everyone told me it was. And uh, so I would go out there and check it out. And naturally, I was curious about the place, so I wanted to find out more about it. But there were all kinds of wild articles about the building in the Daily Eastern News, the college newspaper, where people said that they had found severed pig's heads in there. There was all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, but there was also a rumor that if you went out there, the owner would come and chase you off with a shotgun. Now, how how did you manage to to buy the building from him? Uh, and what, what, what was the story behind that? I actually, uh, I had heard that uh, you didn't dare go on the property. My way of doing it was I, I looked for who the owner was and found who the owner was, and I went and... Uh, tried to talk to him. My intent originally was to rent the place. I was going to, for my rent, I was tell, I was going to tell him that I'll clean it up. And then after I'm done renting it, he would have a building that was cleaned up. I never could get an answer from him on what it would take to be able to rent the place. And I, But I did hear 
a common theme coming out of things that he was saying, and that was that he was frustrated with the fact that, that people kept on breaking the windows, and he was trying to put new windows in the place, and people kept breaking the windows and kept damaging the place. He'd put windows in one weekend, come back the next weekend, they were all broken. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I heard the frustration, and I offered to buy it from him, and through some negotiation, um, I was able to do that. Oh, great. And so after you bought it, did, was there any resistance from the community that you encountered? I know that there were some people who just wanted the place to be torn down. Well, there was, uh, there's articles written about uh, the, the guy who runs the health department in the area, the environmental health side, and that his, his belief was that the place should just be torn down because it wasn't safe. After we cleaned the place up. I mean, a lot of people felt that the floors were had holes in them uh, that you could fall through the floors. There were stories about people who had who'd fallen and their legs had gone through the floors, you know. But when we cleaned the place up, we didn't find any holes in the floors at all because the floors are all concrete, including the attic. Every floor has concrete on it. The building is still sitting on a foundation that's good and the walls for the most part, are still intact in the shape that they were when they were when they were built. Yeah, it so, seems very structurally sound. You're it's physically fit. Yeah, you didn't have to really replace anything major then, huh? Just cosmetic. No, actually, um, in 2009 we replaced the roof. The the big the one thing that I saw right when I first came here, when I was given permission to come on the property, I came one day, and uh, the next day that I came, it had just been a torrential downpour. And I came right after the rain was done, but the place was soaked inside the whole entire, everywhere, there was water, everywhere. And I knew that that water, you know, you think about like the Colorado River, what it does to the ground. It, water does the same thing to buildings. And the water, if I didn't stop the water coming into the building, the water would eventually take the building down. Oh, definitely. So my, my biggest thing was I wanted to get a roof on the building. And it took me a couple of years to be able to do that, but now the building's got a new roof on both of the both the new and the old building have new roofs. On the paranormal side, I know you said you don't really believe in that kind of stuff, but you know there's always groups in and out of there. Has anybody found anything that you would consider personally to be credible, something you would believe in, you know, or is you have you not seen anything yourself yet? Well, um, the I just don't believe that it's what people say it is. Okay, that's all. Um, I don't believe that the explanation that's given to it by paranormal investigators is the only possibility. And my own personal beliefs have me, I guess, I guess I'm just a, a massive skeptic. Okay. Well, that's good though. That's actually, cause some people are just the opposite, the slightest little noise and they instantly go, Oh my God, it's a ghost. You know, and it's not, you got to use your brain, think things through. Right. And usually I can, I can identify what the source of a noise is at night. You know, I do tours in the building, people come in and I'll, I'll do tours for minimum five people, and I'll do it at any time. So except for Sundays, I mean, I've had people come at 2 o'clock in the morning to do a tour. So, I mean, and the place is like a movie set. So, I mean, people come here because they watch horror movies, and they want to go see a place that could be the set of a horror movie. And this is that kind of a place. So what what are the ghosts that people say are in there? I know there's been some... Uh, psychics who have gone through and said that there was a specific entity there. I mean, generally, what are some of the 
personalities that have been placed onto people that have been seen in, in the building? Well, I usually don't answer that kind of question because I feel like that's uh, that takes away... If people are doing a scientific approach to paranormal investigation, you don't want to lead them as to what they'll find or guess what they'll find. Mm-hmm. That's actually um, quite true. So I typically don't tell people about the the spirits that have been found in the building. I will tell you that there are four known spirits. Um, and this is... I When I say known spirits, I'm saying... This I'm talking as the people who've come here and giving you what they've told me. Um, we have four known spirits in the building. We have numerous not identified spirits. When I say known, I'm meaning that they've been identified and they have characteristics that many people have found very similar characteristics. Mm-hmm. There's I have I have a couple of people who talk about some spirits. I typically have to have you know four or five people tell me the same thing before I'll relate it as something that I feel like is credible. Right. Um, I'm really not the one judging the credibility, but if multiple people tell me it, then then there's some credibility just in the exactly the, the fact that there's multiple multiple people saying it. You know. That's about yeah, all you it, have to go by, actually, in something like this, you know, unless somebody gets one of those amazing photos. Otherwise, all you can go by is what people tell you. And if, if they all correspond and these people don't all know each other, then you got to think twice about it. Yeah, well, I've, I have had I've had multiple things happen that would have freaked other people out in the building. They've happened to me. But because I don't put it down to being something that's scary or something that's haunted, something that's out of my control, something that'll get me... Since I don't put it down to that, the building doesn't bother me at all. I've had I've heard footsteps in the building that were clear and concise. I mean, it was it, it, from my point of view, I thought somebody was walking there. I've had I've I've heard voices in the building. I heard a lady just just this last October during the haunted house. I went in there on a Sunday morning to go check a door or something like that, and was walking through the first floor. And I heard, it sounded like somebody was in a, in a room next to me. I heard a lady, like, speak a sentence. I didn't, couldn't recognize anything that she said. But, it, you know, it's kind of like if you hear somebody in the other room and you're not listening to their conversation. It was like that. It's kind of convincing, though, if you're the only one in there. That's, I mean, that's not yeah. just the wind. I, I wonder how much our minds play tricks on us, okay? That's true. Um, you know, as a kid... I had my fears about going into my basement. And dang it, if anything that happened while I was in the basement wouldn't get blamed on that fear, you know? Right. right. So I think that we all come to, when we come to Ashmore States, we all come here with our preconceived notions of what things are. And if you come here and you don't have a lot of knowledge about how the world works, then you will assign noises one of your fears you know so I've, I've had a lot of people investigate the building i've had 43 i think 43 investigations as of now since 2006 and i don't have anybody that i know of nobody has told me that they've left here disappointed people all the time tell me that the place is very active now i, I know there's a group there recently from chicago and they came back on Facebook, and we're very excited about all the things that they uh, had captured there. Yeah, well, I had I had a group that uh, came in right after the haunted house had closed. I still had walls up and things like that, and they kind of were expecting to see what they had seen on Ghost Adventures. And in May, when the Ghost Adventures were here, we had 
we had all the walls down and everything in the hallways, so there was a lot of open space. When these people came, there wasn't a lot of open space, and they were pretty disappointed in that and uh, and called me up to vocalize it. I wasn't in town at the time. I had somebody else watching the building. But they were telling me about the displeasure that they had, and when they left, after staying the night in the building, when they left, they told me that, holy cow, that was such an awesome night. So, I mean... None of this is me. I don't do any of this. This is stuff that people see when they go in the building. So I don't have to do any hype about this. All I do is rent the building. No, these things hype themselves too, especially with some of these ghost researchers. Not all of them, but some of them, like I say, the slightest little noise. And it's instantly a ghost and they, they tend to get all excited and one thing leads to another. Well, you know, everybody, if, if you had watched the Ghost Adventure show in the trailer and in the, um, real 42 minute show um zach was sitting in the hallway and he says that he heard a real big bang and he flew backwards in his chair i did find that the room that he said the noise came from part of the ceiling had fallen in that room and it 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 wasn't it wasn't it hadn't fallen before he was there it fell while he was there zach really did get scared by something happening (laughs) in the building the the people now when they had reenactments in the show those were all your actors, correct? They were. From the haunted house. They were. We had. Uh, we have. We have a great group of people who do haunting with us. We have a loyal group of twenty or thirty actors that come back to us every year, and they help us design it. They help us build it. They make props and everything like that. And so we we give them the opportunity to be in anything that's filmed. We asked the ghost adventurers if they needed actors to play the dramatizations, and they said yes. And and uh, when when they left, they told us they'd never had anybody give them that kind of support before. Mm. Uh, but we had like 10 actors and we had a makeup crew here. And so all of the, just about all of the dramatization actors were were the Haunting of Elsinore or Ashmore Estates actors. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, they, they, um, they had a lot of fun. And we, we then had a, uh, a large party at uh, Buffalo Wild Wings. And we asked them to turn all the TVs on to the show in advance, and we told them we told them we were coming. And yeah. so all all the big screen TVs in the Buffalo Wild Wings were on the show, and it was really fun because there was about a hundred people there watching. Wow, that's great! I, I I wish I could have gone to that. I had a little viewing party of my own, and my living room was packed with people. I think that's that cool. that show got a lot of people excited because finally they came to Illinois. They've done a lot of other states. Uh, for, for some reason, they've avoided Illinois until now. And of all the places, they went to Ashmore State. So I think that that's very cool. Well, you know, it's, what's funny is they had actually called me two years before that. I was, they called me in October. They said they were coming through this area and they'd like to stop here. And I told them, you know, I don't know that I can do that because they want to come in on a Friday and Saturday. And I'm like, I've got, I've got my haunted attraction running right now. I can't do that. And they said, no problem. We'll, we'll get in touch with you in the future. And Something that happened that I didn't know about was a cousin of mine is David Schrader. And David Schrader is pretty well known in the paranormal community. He does, uh, he does a radio show also. is his Darkness on the Edge of, of Town. And uh, as a matter of fact, Mike, you and I have been on that. He's good friends with Zach and with Jeff Ballinger. They did Paranormal Challenge together. David Schrader was one of the three people on that. So David had asked them if they would like to come out here, and he, they, he said, I've, I've got a cousin that's got a place, and uh, uh, would you guys like to try it? They called me up, and we made arrangements, and they came out. And it was, um, I think that they are fantastic editors. I think uh, 
Zach is is a genius at the way that he he edits. He he definitely makes a show that people want to watch. Yeah, that's that's certainly true. So so you're happy then with the way the show came out? You thought everything went well? Yeah, for me, I mean, from looking at it from my point of view, I'm looking to to get more people to know about the place, and uh, um, I've had I've had a heck of a lot of people come to investigate because of the Ghost Adventurers show. I had three phone calls during the show. I'm sure the TV does wonders. <laughs> yeah. It's such a large audience, and I, I guess they this was uh, episode one of season five, so they've been doing it for a while. They know what they're doing. Yeah, and now this is, th- there's another exciting uh, opportunity for, for Ashmore States to be in a show, right? The, the Booth brothers are finally going to come out with this Children of the Grave 2, and it's going to exclusively feature Ashmore States. Is that is that correct? Um, no, it's not going to exclusively feature us. We've um, Christopher told me that we'd get about thirty minutes of it. Oh, okay. um, it's it's a it's an hour. Well, if you think about Ghost Adventures, they were about forty-two to forty-six minutes. Mm-hmm. So out of an hour show, there's time in there for commercials. And the Booth Brothers shows are usually about an hour and a half long. So out of the, we'll get about a third of the show. Will be Ashmore Estates. It's called Children of the Grave Two. Uh, you can look up Booth Brothers and Children of the Grave 2. There's a lot of hype running around about that right now. The, the Booth Brothers, really nice guys. Uh, Christopher uh, St. Booth and Philip Adrian Booth, both guys are real nice. Kind of kind of an interesting twist because they look like cowboys, but when they speak, they've got British accents. <laughs> British cowboys, yeah. okay. You don't yeah, see British that very cowboys. often. <laughs> yes, British cowboys. And uh, they've been here twice, actually. And actually, Philip um, is married to a lady that he met here. Ivana is, um, he met her here uh, the first time that they came. Oh, I, so I didn't realize that before. I, she, she was friends with me on Facebook. For, this is now is getting into kind of personal stuff. But she was friends with me on Facebook from my own writing, I guess, that she had, had liked that years ago. And I, I didn't know that she was from Illinois. I thought... They met out in L.A. or something. Actually, I don't think she's from Illinois. I think she's from Missouri. But she had she had liked Ashmore States, and uh, and I guess she was she came out here to be a uh, a helper when they came out here, and that's when Philip and and Ivana met each other. Huh. That's interesting. Well, what what is some of the? I, I know you must have had a lot of people tell you some crazy stories over the years of things that happened to them. What what are some of the most interesting that you've heard? Oh wow, some of the most interesting stories of people. There's so many. I'm sure there is actually. And I and I don't I I don't want to. The problem is that 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 kind of is leading for people who would come in the future. Oh, okay, that's understandable. And I have. I don't know why it is, but I just have this break that goes on. Uh, I don't want to talk about that. But we've had, I, I'll tell you, I, we had um, one of my actors was on the third floor. And we were, this was two or three years ago. And he was trying to fix a switch on a prop that shot air at people's feet. We have about 65 actors in the building. We had at that time about 65 actors in the building. And he noticed that somebody was standing next to him. He saw their feet. You know, he's looking down and he saw their feet. And so he looked back at the switch, was playing with it a little more, looked back and the feet were gone. And he turned all the way around and there was nobody around him. And he just absolutely freaked. And he was on the third floor. He had to go across the building and down the stairway on the other side to come out to us. And he was visibly shaken. 
I've seen that happen to a number of people. The night that Booth Brothers were here doing an investigation, we had a group, um, International or ISPI, Julie Velasquez's group was here. And there was a lady named Sherry that was here. And she was walking down the first floor hallway and she saw my cat come out of one of the side rooms and she wasn't really paying much attention to the cat. She was looking at something else. And, but she, she did look at the cat and saw the cat was looking back up at the doorway that the cat had just come out of. When she looked at the doorway, somebody bent out and looked right at her. Mm-hmm. And she was, when she came upstairs, she was vis- visibly shaken. I've heard people say that person looked white as a ghost. Well, she actually did. <laughs> That's pretty cool. I want to get out that way. I told Mike before I'd love to go out there and check that place out. We could even record live for the radio if I make it out there too. Well, that would be, we could do something like that. If I can get Mike, Mike's afraid of this kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, if you're talking about Mike clean, he's not afraid of this building. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm always kidding, Mike. <laughs> well, I will say though, you know, some of the times when I've been in there by myself, I I was always kind of weary to go up on the third floor. I always got an unnerving feeling up there. Well, I've got people who have certain places in the building that numerous people have told me there's a couple places in the building that would be considered hot spots. I do have some groups that come here and ask me where are the hot spots, and I go back to my breaks go on, and I well, yeah, it's, I won't it's tell much them. better not to t- tell them. I mean, I I wouldn't right. want to know myself if I went there to investigate that. I don't want you to tell me what's hot and what's not. I want to go there myself and find out. Well, maybe if I was a paranormal investigator, maybe my mind would be different. Maybe I would want more people to see the same things. I would rather have people see what they see without being told what they're going to see. Exactly. No preconceptions. You don't, you know, if you say the third floor closet over there is a hot spot, well, people are automatically going to think they're going to see things there. Right. And I, like I said, I, I have, I have seen things in the building. I've heard things. I've heard, I've heard voice twice, both times it was female, not necessarily talking to me, but there's, there is YouTube videos you can see of what people have put up about Ashmore States. And there's, like I said, there's 43 groups that have come out here. So there's lots of people who've investigated here. And as far as I know, everybody's been real happy with it. I'm definitely going to have to check it out, Mike. We're going to have to go up there and we'll record for the show. Sure. Well, let's talk about the haunted attraction. What kind of themes have you done? And are you planning on a new theme this year? I know every year you try to do something different. We do, we do. We've uh, 2006, the first year. You were there, actually. I got you. You recorded the thing for it. you're the only one who uh, video yeah. recorded it. And I appreciate that. The uh, the first year we were Ashmore State's Asylum because everybody believed that Ashmore State's had been an, an insane asylum, which is not really part of its history. It was a mental institution, but not an insane asylum. There is quite a difference between the two. This building, after it was a poor farm almshouse, this building then became basically a care facility facility for people with mental disabilities. Insane Asylum is the kind of place you'd put like Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> right. Okay. So it's it an insane asylum is a place that you keep people when you don't want them to get out in the community because they would harm the community. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Ashmore Estates was never that kind of a building. So but but we we like to run on our haunted attractions, you know, they obviously are not real. So we like to pick up on the themes that people think. So the first year we were Ashmore Estates Asylum the second year, in 2007, we were Undertaker's Laboratories, which was, we had a storyline about a strain of corn that was killing people. 
That sounds uh, it was, it was Yeah, it was the laboratory that was creating the strain of corn. Then 2008, we were Macabre Manor. 2009, we were Circus Sanatorium. Anybody like clowns? Yeah, yeah, we a had... lot of people are afraid of clowns. I found that out actually talking on the radio. Oh, yeah. There's lots. Lots of people are really scared of clowns. And uh, and our clowns were not necessarily very nice. <laughs> and we've we've from that we've got one actor who's uh, who's Doctor Narls, and Doctor Narls has become an institution here. So he's in every year from then on. Uh, like my character is the Spookmeister, and the Spookmeister has been at every one of the haunted houses, and will continue to be there. He's kind of like the ringmaster, you know. Then uh, in 2010 we were No Mercy General Hospital. 2011 <laughs> we were. Gosh, we just did that. I'm trying to remember what we called it. <laughs> well, that's, that's okay. Well, that's good you guys that's are creative, too. Every year is different rather than just doing the same thing over and over and over. Yeah. Well, what are, what are your plans for this year? Give me a second. I'm looking <laughs> up what we were. We were Ashmore State's Institute of Undead. Oh, that's right. <laughs> And I and like when we did um, when we did circus sanatorium when we when we came up with Doctor Narls that we had a we had a place called Narl Clinic and our uh, in this uh, we we try to pick on one of the local businesses here and we make them some port part of our haunt <laughs> so um, in in our area there's a place that's called Carl Clinic so we had Narl Clinic last year we were A E I O U Ashmore State's Institute of Undead. And around here we have EIU, which Mike went to, yeah. which is Eastern Illinois University. And so we we took out of that the EIU from A E I O U, and uh, so we were picking on EIU. Well, I'm sure they appreciated that. Yes, of course they did. Have Have you noticed? Obviously, you probably don't ask everybody, but do you, do you notice a lot of students coming to the haunted house, or is it mainly just locals? Um, you know, I think that our mainstay demographic is the locals they're the ones who come and people come from they're, they're not necessarily all local we get people from we're in central illinois we're the largest haunted house in central illinois we get people from st louis Terre Haute, indianapolis and chicago and anywhere in between joliet kankakee and uh, i guess even rockford Oh yeah, I'm sure. Well, you get sounds like you got an amazing haunted house there, though. I mean, what you said, sixty actors or so. This this isn't just no, one of those normal ones, right? This is well, Ashmore Estates is is fifteen thousand square feet. That's a big building, and it's three floors. You don't want to come here if you're in a wheelchair because we don't have wheelchair access. You do stairs in our haunted house. You have to walk up to the third floor and walk down from the third floor. And do the second floor in between, you know. Yeah, unfortunately, so, someone smashed the elevator a long time ago. Well, the the elevator people took everything out of the building, so there's no there's no copper wiring in the building or anything like that. It was all stolen from the building. I know there was a lot of illicit graffiti too that uh, had to be painted over when you moved in there. There is, and we and we had a, a outstanding graphic artist that came in and he did a number of awesome murals in our building and you can see some of those murals on our website ashmoreestates.net now i know you had other events there what what other kind of events you got flashlight tours you had some overnight things right right and i uh, actually i'm i'm in the process of working on uh, on a i'm putting together a documentary on the history of the building Mm -hmm. And just yesterday talked to a group that had done a music video in the building, and I was asking them if they would like to score the documentary. So uh, the group's name was Rec, W-R-E-C-K-E-D, 
and Recht actually wrote a song for Ashmore Estates, and it's called Mind's Eye. And they are from Chicago, right? They're from Chicago, and they're a heavy metal band. And um, the song that they did inside of Ashmore Estates is Enemy. You can Google that also, Wrecked and Enemy, and you will find the video that they did on at Ashmore Estates. Uh, um, my my totally unbiased opinion of this documentary is that it's going to be really good. Uh, the, yeah, well, the writer I know the writer. The documentary, yeah, is is excellent. <laughs> Did you write it, Mike? <laughs> yeah, I, I did. <laughs> Somehow I got that feeling. <laughs> yeah, Mike and I just met a couple of days ago to talk about it. Yeah, it's going to be a great project. Uh, and I think hopefully <clears throat> now that all this attention has been brought to the place by Ghost Adventures and by the Booth Brothers and uh, other interviews like with our radio show, I, I think this year is going to be a banner year for the Haunted House. Should be too. Plus, I definitely plan on going out there. You're coming with well, me. Good. We're going to do a. We'll do a recording out there, a live show or something. Yeah, you should uh, uh, do a road trip. Come out here. Yeah, so definitely. Like, I'd like to make it in uh, Halloween time too, when you have your uh, haunted house going. Yeah. Now during during Halloween, it's hard to get in here to do paranormal investigation. Well, no, I don't mean for an investigation. I mean just right. as a patron to come by and see your haunted house. Right. Well, we we uh, we have a lot of people who come out uh, the last weekend of the last weekend before Halloween is usually our busiest weekend. Well, we had uh, last October. I did a haunted tour down in Coles County, and we stopped by Ashmore States. I think we had about seventy people. And uh, Scott, of course, is as gracious as always with telling everyone about the building and the history and the stories and stuff like that. So it's always a good time when you go there. Yeah, it's a lot of it's a lot of fun. I mean, there's a lot of stories, and I mean, I do tell people about the spirits during tours. But since this is a paranormal radio show, I'd rather not mention well, actually, it. On. It's just fully understandable. Plus, it piques their interest. Now, people yeah, you just want to tease to go there tease now. Them. <laughs> Well, like like I said, there there are four recurring themes as, as far as who might be spirits in the building, and we do have visual pleasure for people, and we have uh, we have sensory pleasure. I mean, we've got one of the spirits touches people. That's always. And I actually to actually that. had I actually had a uh, sheriff who was working for us, you know, doing security for us um, in 2010, and on Halloween night, he felt somebody. He felt a hand on his back, and he was wearing a Kevlar vest. Okay, <laughs> that's a bulletproof vest, and you know you wouldn't you feel, feel a hand even that. if somebody touched you. You wouldn't feel a hand; you'd feel pressure on the vest. This was a hand on his back. Wow. So, so has that officer been back to do that duty there since oh, yeah. that day? <laughs> yeah, and he—I mean, he'll he'll talk about it. He doesn't have a problem with talking. Well, there's about some it. people actually do that; they enjoy it. But if something like that happens, they actually don't ever want to go back. Well, this guy's, I mean, this guy is, if I ever had a problem, I want, if I ever had a problem and I needed a police officer, I want this guy there. Oh, there you go. Well, John, do you have any other questions for our guest? Oh, not really. I mean, it, I've never been there myself, but I definitely want to go there. I do a little bit of research myself because I do paranormal research too. I'm not just the, the host in the show. So I, I want to go there firsthand and check it out myself. Well, one other thing that we do that uh, that we haven't talked about at all is um, we have had, we, we do a thing called Night of Insanity. And we allow people to, for a price, come out and spend the night in the building. And we actually... Didn't we have you speak one time, Mike? You did. I think it was the very first time that you you did the event. I spoke. Right, right. And um, and my whole idea with the preparation uh, 
the things that people see was, you know, we, we played white noise, I think, that night, and we had Mike speak. The whole idea was to get people psyched about spending the night in the building. And we've done that a number of times, and I think I'm going to start doing that again. But if people have an interest to do that kind of thing, they just need to let me know. Uh, you can find us, you can find out what we do on the website, ashmorestates.net. And and it's not the .com because the .com goes to a real estate company in Europe. So it's ashmorestates.net. Yeah, I definitely encourage all our listeners to go check that out. And if you're in the area, come out and, and visit the place because it's it's great. It's a good time. Well, make sure you let people know that I'd like them to call me before they come on the property. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's right. Well, I, <laughs> because I you own a gun to the haunted too. house. <laughs> right. We, well, we, we have people visit the place all the time. It's just I like to know that people are coming. When I first came here, the building had lots of people coming here all the time. And this is private property. And it's not okay to just walk on the property and, and walk around and film or take right. pictures. Not on the property. You can do it from the street, but not on the property. And so I don't necessarily... I'm sure there's some people out there that don't feel like I've been very nice to them. But if you want to come to the property and, and actually take part in it, you need to give me a call. Well, that's only right, you, too. I mean, it's your it's your place. Right, right. And, and some people don't understand that. Some people feel like it's just, some people don't realize that it is owned by a person. Some people think that it is just an abandoned building, and it's far from that. A building's never just abandoned. Somebody always owns it. That's very true. But a lot of people didn't realize that. There is something that I found out from a lot of the police officers here and from farmers that used to happen back in the days when Mike used to go in there. The police officers would park their cars behind the building because people were always out here mm -hmm. and it wasn't okay for them to be out here. So the police would park their cars behind the building and they'd go into the building and they'd wait for people co to come in and they the police officers would have picked up like a pipe off the floor or something like a piece, piece of brick or something and they'd chuck it down the hallway towards the door where the people are coming in and people would fly out of the place. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> and uh, it, it happened quite a bit and uh, I think that it, it helped to create some of the aura that is Ashmore State. Oh, I'm sure. Well, Scott, uh, I appreciate you coming on and sharing everything with us. Uh, it was very, very interesting, as always. And I hope people go and check out the, the website, ashmorestates.net. And we'll put a link up on our site, too. And it was really great talking with you. Thanks, John. I appreciate you, you inviting me on. TheEdgeOnAir.com wants to invite you to be abducted. Tune in Friday night starting at 10 p.m. for Thresholds Radio. Host John Stevenson is your guide through the realm of the paranormal with an hour-long radio show sure to give you the heebie-jeebies. Check out UFO-Info.com to learn more. It's Thresholds Radio every Friday night at 10 p.m. on TheEdgeOnAir.com. Welcome back to Thresholds into Other Realms. With us on the phone right now is Michael Clean, and Mike has got a guest with him again this week. How you doing, Mike? Hey, thanks for having me on once again. Yeah, I do. I have a, a special guest, a pair of them actually, Bruce and Lisa Klein from Carbondale, Illinois. Now, for those of you in the Chicago listening area that may not be aware of areas of the state south of I-80. Yes, I'm guilty uh, of that. <laughs> Carbondale is way down in the southern tip of Illinois. And there's surprisingly a, a lot of ghost stories come from that area and a lot of very famous ones uh, because that was one of the first areas of the state to be settled. So a lot of our oldest ghost stories come from southern Illinois. Uh, and Bruce and Lisa Klein 
have written a book recently, uh, History, Mystery, and Hauntings of Southern Illinois, and not only have they gone over some of the older stories, but they've also added uh, a bunch of new places as well because they are paranormal investigators, and they've been in the local news a lot down there, uh, and they've done a lot of good investigations, so they should have a lot of uh, interesting places to tell us about. That sounds good. They basically do the same thing you do then, too, right about Illinois. Oh, yeah, yeah, and uh, the book has done real well. They've been doing a lot of book signings down there, and so hopefully we can find some people in the Chicago area that might be uh, interested in reading about places, you know, from different areas of the state, and uh, there's a lot of good stories from down there. So without further ado, let's uh, introduce Bruce and Lisa Klein. I believe they're on the road right now. Is that correct? That's correct. Police and I are on the road right now, Route 13, headed between Harrisburg and Carbondale. Oh, that's cool. And you guys just came from a book signing? Yes, we did. There's a local bookstore down there, the Book Emporium, and uh, we're there for a book signing and Book's doing very well down here. Oh, I can imagine. And just so you know, our uh, our listeners know, how how did you guys first get into paranormal investigation? Uh, I know that your your interest in the paranormal probably went back long before you started investigating. So, kind of give us a little story about that, about how you got in, into it. Well, it started back in the uh, mid to late sixties when I was in. Um junior high school, grade school area, and back then, TV show called Dark Shadows was very popular. Oh, I used to love that one myself. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'd rush home from school every day at 3 o'clock just to watch it. So anyway, um, I had a backyard treehouse, and I started a club that I called the Gaslight Ghoul Club. <laughs> and we would meet on weekend nights and just tell ghost stories or something about vampires or werewolves, just try to creep each other out. And had a great time with it. Uh, that's how it started back then. And, uh, of course, later on, college, careers, marriage, family, that took precedence. But about five years ago, my wife and I decided to start up another ghost society. We called this one the Little Egypt Ghost Society. And the way we came up with that name is the southern part of the state is actually known as Little Egypt. And that came about in the early 1800s. There's some crop failures up north, so people Chicago and that area had come down to southern Illinois for grain just to feed their families and their cattle. And they went back to the Bible passages where uh, Joseph and his sons went down to Egypt to get the grain to feed their family. So that's how southern Illinois got to be known as Little Egypt. So we chose that as the name of our group. Hmm. That's very, very fascinating. What are some of your more interesting cases that you've had over the years? Well, probably the most interesting one was at the Rose Hotel. That's in Elizabethtown, Illinois, on the Ohio River. It's down by Cayman Rock, Illinois. And the hotel is actually owned by the state of Illinois and operated as a bed and breakfast. It'll be 200 years old next year, and it is the oldest continually operating hotel in the state. Well, we've done several overnight investigations there, and every single time, doesn't matter if it's daytime or nighttime, We've had paranormal activity. It's just incredible. In fact, we captured with one of our cameras what we believe is to be a ghost of a former servant there. Mm -hmm. And the 
way I got it, I was in one of the upstairs suites, and I was just taking a general picture of the room, crouched down, got ready to snap a picture, and I heard the floor creak behind me, and I turned around, there's no one there, because the rest of the team's downstairs. So I went ahead and took the picture, and several others didn't think any more of it. Well, what we do when we get home is we take the digital cameras and hook them up to a TV set because there's better resolution. And on that one picture in the far corner, there's a piece of furniture, an armoire with the mirrors on it. And someone said, look in the corner. It looks like there's a head there or a face. So we zoomed in on it, and sure enough, it looked like the face that's kind of coming out of the mirror staring at me. And I thought, well, that's got to be me since I was the only one up there. (laughs) Well, we showed it to Sandy. She's the lady that manages the place for the state, and she says, I know who that is. She went in her office where she kept the scrapbook and has all the old time photos from the Rose Hotel there. And she found this one photo of a named man named Tote. He was a former servant there. Turns out he was born there. He worked there all his life. He died there and is buried in the backyard. The photo matched exactly with the photo I captured. He's a black man and all the features were there. I mean, you could superimpose the two photos. So that was pretty convincing to us. That's actually pretty cool, a photo that you can validate, which is extremely rare in this kind of business. We went back and tried to debunk the photo. We went in and took that piece of furniture and tried moving it. We tilted the mirror. I changed positions in the room. We actually videotaped ourselves doing this, and no matter what we did, we could not reproduce the photo. So that's what makes me think we may have really captured something. And talk about creepy. When you go to this bed and breakfast, there's a small family cemetery right there that you you could look out your window and it's it's sitting there on the property that's ambiance you pay extra for that yeah <laughs> well that area i know that you've you've gone and done some investigations at at some other places down there can you tell us about those uh probably the most recent one was at the southern illinois university campus we were Shryock auditorium it was built in the 1930s and uh, henry Shryock, he was professor there and his office was actually in the auditorium the theater itself and he died there in his office the day the place opened up. So just before Halloween, uh, the city council had a group of Girl Scouts who wanted us to take there and give them a little ghost hunt, a little presentation for Halloween. So we were set up in the auditorium on the stage, had all of our equipment there doing question-answer type thing, and um, all of a sudden on stage left, we heard this door slam shut so hard it almost tripped the stage. We were looking around because everyone was accounted for. They were on the audience. In fact, we were locked in the building. So pretty soon after that, we dismissed the Girl Scouts, and we decided to investigate it. Well, we checked various doors, and they all had these dampers on them, so they closed real shut. It was impossible to slam, but we found one door that would slam like that. The thing is, it was locked. It was barricaded on the outside because they just regrouted the sidewalk, and on the inside, it had the red, I mean, yellow caution tape where no one could get through it anyway. So we think, for whatever reason, it may have been Henry upset that we were there, or curious, or I don't know, but the door slammed, and like I said, we could not account for it. You had to actually have a key to open the door. Well, that's huh. interesting. That's actually a known yeah. fact, too. A lot of times, if a spirit seems to be upset with you, they'll they'll pound on a wall or slam a door or stomp their feet. You know, they tend to make some loud bang. Right. There's a ghost light on the stage there, and the performers there and staff say a lot of times the light will turn on or off by itself, and they'll hear various sounds, and they all think it's the ghost of Henry, the guy that actually died there years ago. Well, just out of curiosity, 
Now, up here in Rockford, there's been some controversy with uh, local churches being opposed to um, some of the paranormal tours that are going on over here. One of my good friends does uh, Rockford paranormal tours. She used to do them out of the public library, but apparently there was a, a brouhaha uh, where some local pastors got upset that you know that the the library was hosting these events. H- have you run into any kind of opposition down there? Uh, I well, imagine religious sentiment is stronger down there than it is up it's here. It's very strong, but in our case, it's very interesting. We go from one extreme to the other. There's one church in a rather rural area here, and the pastor was talking about, I believe, during his sermon, saying that our book came out, and it was a book of lies, and uh, <laughs> we're dealing with the devil and that sort of thing. And obviously, <laughs> How nice. <laughs> never even read the book, because our book's mainly history and folklore. Yeah, not a very good review. Now, the other extreme, we had a pastor of a Christian church in Vienna, Illinois, He's actually a member of our team, and he promoted our book during one of his sermons. So they rushed out and get it, so we go from one extreme to the other. <laughs> I guess. Well, hey, controversy just sells more books, so that's good. Oh, yeah. Any publicity is good publicity. Well, that kind of bleeds over into the question I was going to ask about the reception of the book. Now, it, it came out in uh, the summer of 2011, and it's called History, Mystery, and Hauntings of Southern Illinois. And what did you find was the reception when you first came out with the book? Well, the reception has been overwhelming down here. I think the people are starting for this sort of thing because there's not any books about paranormal, ghost hunting, or stuff like that that is specifically dealing with Southern Illinois. And by Southern Illinois, I mean I-64 and South, the extreme southern part. So people are really eager because there's only been just a few other books. One came out in the 1930s, and then there's another book came out in the early 60s. And besides those two, there's nothing specific to our area. So yeah, people I snatch up this book as soon as it comes out. Yeah, it's uh, that's one of the things that I liked about it is it really updated that. And I'm, I'm honestly surprised because I, I know that uh, Troy Taylor has written a lot about central Illinois and other parts of the state, but even he hasn't done very much about the the deep south there in, in southern Illinois. So it's a good addition to the uh, the literature. We've had a great time doing it, too. Like I said, we've traveled extensively throughout southern Illinois, interviewed a lot of people, done some of our own investigations and research at historical societies and old newspapers, and there's just so much information out here that people don't know about, and they're eager to read about. It. Yeah, especially the people like my like we're saying up here in the Chicagoland area, we don't know about anything in that way. Is you know, I'm afraid to say that I've lived in Chicago my whole life, and I don't know any of the stories of that area you're in, which is kind of a shame considering I've lived in Illinois my entire life. Right. Well, we got a lot of Chicago people that attend Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, so hopefully they'll pick up copies of the book, take them back home to Chicago, and generate some interest up that way. Yeah, there you oh, go. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, now you're you're working on a new book, is that correct? And can you tell us a little bit about that? The new book, we were going to originally expand the area into, like, Kentucky, Missouri, Tennessee, some from Gettysburg and all that. But we've actually found we had a lot more information on southern Illinois specifically where we could make just another complete book about this area and wait for a third volume of the surrounding areas. Oh, can, can you tell us a, a little bit about some of the newer stories you'd like to add? Yeah, as long as you don't steal them for your book, Mike. <laughs> Lisa has a couple things to add. Here's Lisa. Okay. Hi. 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 Uh, you guys were asking about some of the stories in our new, newer book. 
one of the stories we're going to be putting in there is about a house we did a investigation in Murfreesboro, and the couple had been having some problems, and they had a pantry. The house had been redone. I think the house was built, what, back in the 60s, 50s, 60s, somewhere in there, and the lady that lived there actually lived there when she was a small child, and the house sewed, and long story short, she has reattained the house in her name now, and she went in, and they've redone everything, and in the pantry, she said before when she lived there, she said she had an off and on little creepy things, but she never thought anything about it. And we went in and did an investigation, and immediately I went to the pantry and asked them what the deal was with the pantry. Come to find out, there was a little girl. I guess at one time, there was an older gentleman that lived there, and he was very punishable to small children, but little girl was in the pantry. And I had told him, I said, well, just take in, in the pantry and just put, like, a teddy bear or a doll or something. And they, they put some chalk in there, and they put a teddy bear in there. And when I first went in there, the first time, the the pantry itself was just like dark and dreary. It was awful. And so we went back a couple weeks later and you could tell a difference in it. So there's still some things. It's still an ongoing investigation. Uh, we keep in contact with them. And so far, everything's been a little bit quieter for them. So that's one of our stories we're going to be putting in the book. And then I'm originally from Galatia, Illinois, and I have various stories throughout Galatia. Uh, one of the stories, my grandmother's 96 years old, and I recall back in the early 70s this actually happening, but Grandma knew the lady, and she had actually killed her husband. <laughs> and uh, everybody jokes around, it's a big joke around the area, but it's actually a true story. The lady actually killed her husband, he was cheating on her, and <laughs> she killed him, and uh, actually cut him up and sent him to their house. <laughs> <laughs> That's not and, really funny, and, but we're laughing. No, it's, yeah, I know, I know. But that was the story, and it still generates around in this area. It's a big story around this area still yet, and it's out in the country, and it's a rural area. And the lady had recently died back in the 80s, so, you know, it's kind of died down a little bit, but the story's still out there. And actually, the, the true story about it is um, Grandma had talked talk to me about it, and she said the man was actually seen uh, at the train station in Marion, and they think he had he actually fled southern Illinois. He was in with Charlie Berger and the Shelton gang, and he was kind of running back and forth between the two gangs, and so I think instead of him actually getting killed by his wife, so it generates around here, it actually was he actually fled southern Illinois, so. <laughs> oh, I, I like the other uh, version better where he was fed yeah, to the yeah. hogs. <laughs> Yeah, well, who knows? That might have could have really been happening, but it's another mystery. <laughs> so how do you find your stories? You know, you've, you've got the book of the whole um, area out there. How do you guys find them? Libraries, hearsay, things like that? Some of it's through the libraries. We go through looking up old articles, and, you know, we'll start out, like, in the book that we have just written, there was this article about a train wreck in Carbondale, and we was actually looking up some information about another story, and I come across this little article that was maybe like a, what, inch by two inch little article, and I was like, oh, this is cool. And I got to reading on it, and then I got in a little bit more extensive history, and we come up with a story. So, oh, there you go. Uh, some of it's through old articles. Some of it is through people, you know, just stories that you hear around and you talk to different people. So, we kind of say as told by, <laughs> you know. Right. So, we can't say that it's true, but it, you know, 
it's told as being true. So. Of course, when it comes to this kind of stuff, you can we can never yeah. say anything is yeah. true, really. Exactly, exactly. Well, so, I have a question for Bruce. Okay, here he is. Okay, I'm back. Hey, Bruce, uh, a lot of people don't know. I mean, even though you're from Southern Illinois, I know you come up to Chicago because of your work in the National Guard. Well, actually, Army Reserve. Or Army Reserve, sorry. And uh, you, you've been to Batchers Grove, right? Yes, that's true. And uh, so now me, that's you... one of the creepier areas. Yeah, tell right. me about and it. you had an interesting experience there, didn't you? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, generally the rule is when you go out on ghost hunts or investigations, you never go alone. You should always have at least one other person with you. Exactly. Well, I violated the rule one night, <laughs> and I went to Batchers Grove Cemetery alone. Oh, okay. It's something I will never do again. Yeah. A death wish. <laughs> uh, anyway, it was during the winter. There was a fresh snowfall on the ground, so I parked at the forest preserve across the street and hiked back there. And there's no tracks in the snow. I mean, I was the first one back there since the snowfall, so walked in there, got in the cemetery, and I'm looking around, and it's just really eerie. And all of a sudden, I hear that these voices kind of like chanting all around me, and there's no one else there. Couldn't figure that out, and I'd see like uh, little lights bobbing around through the forest just outside the fence line. I couldn't figure that out and just got this overwhelming feeling like someone was right there with me. Well, when I crawled back through the fence, I got out to where the trail was and I noticed my footprints were the only ones coming in. There's no other footprints anywhere there, so it couldn't have been anyone walking around or chanting or I can't explain it. But mm-hmm. The feeling there is just uh, evil to me and pressing. I, I have no desire to ever go back. That place is creepy, but other times you go there, it's just like you, it's a walk in the park it's there's nothing out there at all it depends on you know when you're there i had an experience in the winter there the same way i put in a recorder in a hollow log and i walked away and i had the only set of footprints out there and then when i went back only footprints were still mine then later when i listened to it i could hear people walking around in the snow but yet there was no footprints so that same kind of thing you had there Mm -hmm. yeah just really eerie um like i said i I just have no desire to go back to that place, at least not alone, that's for sure. Well, that's my number one rule, too. I always tell people not to go there alone, and not necessarily for the spirits, for the other people that might be hanging around there that might cause you a problem, too. Yeah, that's true. You have more fear from the living than the dead. Exactly. <laughs> well, one of the uh, the big revelations in your book has to do with the Murfreesboro Mud Monster. Some of our listeners probably uh, remember that. It was in one of my top ten lists. They, it was the top ten strangest creatures in Illinois or something like <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, I remember that one. <laughs> and and uh, but, but you have the real story behind it. Now, a lot of people think that it, it's a genuine uh, Bigfoot-like creature. Can you tell us what it actually was? Yes, I can. Um, it was a total hoax. In fact, I'm personally acquainted with the man that did it. This took place in the late 60s, and um, this you know, man, he was a young man at the time, he was real big into amateur uh, movie making, special effects, that sort of thing, so he got with a couple of his buddies, and they decided they would pull a prank on people that would go to Riverside Park and, like, the Lover's Lane be parking. So they made this hairy suit, like a Bigfoot-type monster, and they took river mud, and they kicked that in the fur, and they made uh, special boots that actually had the monster footprints so it could walk through the mud and actually leave the footprints there. How cool. Then they went to the garage and concocted the special stink juice 
that we called OD Sasquatch, and it was just horrible smelling thing. And they also recorded a recording of this horrible monster-like screaming, screech thing. So anyway, one night they went out there, and sure enough, there's a couple parked there on the Lover's Lane area. So they came out of the woods with their little, I mean, their huge Bigfoot suit with mud spattered on it. They sprayed that OD Sasquatch stink juice around, hit the sound effects with the screeching and all that. And the people got so scared, they floored the car, blew gravel everywhere, and went straight to the police department. <laughs> Made the report of this creature out there by Riverside Park. Well, the police went there. They even took a canine unit out there, searched the whole place, and uh, didn't find anything, but the dogs got the scent of the stink juice, and there's a barn there that just refused to win it. I think it's because the stink was so bad. Well, anyway, this man and his buddies got so scared because the police were there. They thought they were going to be arrested and get in all kinds of trouble. They got rid of the suit, just never did it again. But like any good story, it snowballs, and after that, there were sightings all over the place. <laughs> now, there's several books out there tell about the mud monster it's on websites you know but a total hoax that's cool that's funny that's actually great you got the inside story too because these things do tend to take on a life of their own oh yeah and it took a lot for me just get the guy to allow me to publish the story because even today he's still a little bit afraid of getting in trouble over it well i'm I'm sure there's people out there even after reading the, the true story who will insist that it's no, it was a real creature. Well, yeah, my wife was at a street fair in Carbondale and ran across this lady that claimed the creature was real. And she says, yeah, he's real because I know I caught him flying over my the trees in my front yard. I cut his leg off and sent him in the refrigerator. <laughs> <laughs> in the freezer, it tastes great. Okay. <laughs> so you get all types here. Uh, maybe yeah. maybe the police ought to visit that lady's house. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. A check on that refrigerator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This may be a question that Lisa might be able to okay. handle Thank more. Lisa on here. Yeah. Uh, I know in, in your book you have a little section in there about this uh, old crab orchard munitions area, and I'm, I'm kind of yeah. curious about that. Can you tell me more about that place? Um, actually, Bruce had wanted me to go out there and take some pictures, and my youngest son went with me. We went out there, and uh, well, what what is was, it? First of all, um, actually, Bruce could tell you a little bit better. It's an old army thing. He could tell you a little bit better about it than I can. Okay, during World War II, they had a huge munitions plant here in the Marion Carterell Crab Orchard Lake area. It was called Ordell, which means Ordnance of Illinois, and they would make the bombs that B fifty two bombers would go over Europe with and bomb all the towns and they had an army training camp there it was just a huge military complex and they had bunkers there where they would store the munitions and there are actually some still stored there and it's all in western they still make military munitions for think tanks or something out there so it's active to this day anyway here's lisa all right so now you know the history about the place bruce had asked me to go out and take some pictures we was going to kind of start you know writing a little story about the area and and I went out there, like I said, with my youngest son, we went out. It was probably about 4.35 in the evening. We parked the car beside the road, and I got out and started to take pictures, and I took two different cameras with me. Neither of my cameras would work. The first one, I got my small one out, and the batteries immediately went dead. And I thought, okay. So I got my big one out, and it was like something kept blocking, you know, how you go to take a picture, and I thought I had left this, the lens cap on. So I went to take the lens cap off because it kept just showing black. I could see the picture, but then when I go to take a picture, it would just, like, something was, like, the lens was on or something. It would just be black. And I took a copy 
scalpel, and it kind of looked like, finally, when I started, was able to take the pictures, it was like there was something, like, in the way of the lens, but I finally got some pictures, and uh, we got back in the car, and me and my son were sitting there talking about it, and he was asking me about it, and I told him, I said, well, Bruce had said it was an old army place, and I was trying to explain a few things to him about the area, and I looked up in the rearview mirror, and I seen a dark shadow, and I looked at my son, and he had this funny look on his face, and I was like, Ryan, I was like, I said, do you see something? or hear something he goes mom I just heard some rifle shots and I was like yeah and I said well I said I know it's guarded and maybe they're back there shooting you know and we kind of kind of like well maybe we should get going while we were still talking and he got another funny look on his face and I was like okay I said what's wrong and he goes did you see that and I said see what and I knew what he was talking about. He said, it looked like a soldier crouched down behind the car. And sure enough, you know, it really did. And when we got out to look, it was gone, of course. But I mean, you could smell like, the, you know, how the old musket smells. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys have ever been to a reenactment. Yeah. The old musket smelled. The smell was there. So I thought it was kind of interesting. And we went back a couple times, and we haven't been able to capture anything like we did that night. So maybe one of those things that, you know, eventually we'll catch it again. Very <laughs> interesting. That is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. So. Well, John, do you have anything you'd like to add or ask? No, you've been doing pretty good. You're actually making a great a temporary co-host today. <laughs> oh, good. Well, that's pretty much all I had. Uh, so once again, the, the book is called History, Mystery, and Hauntings of Southern Illinois. Check it out. All you want to know about uh, an area of the state that probably many Chicagoans have not explored. So you'll definitely want to look into that. And also, do you guys have a web website or anything you'd like to promote or so we could put it on the air for you we're on facebook if you just look up little egypt ghost society uh, it'll take you to our facebook site okay and we'll put you in our links page too so people can look you up okay, okay. bruce and lisa klein thank you for being on thresholds radio okay thank you okay, and thank you thank you